build a sustainable music career and collect all revenue streams. I'm your host, author, and entrepreneur, Emily White. So at this stage in the 12-step process we're taking you through, you've gotten your art together in episode one. You have your pre-recording marketing platform set up with community.com, your email list, and your social media. So you have that all in place before you even begin recording. But before you hit the studio, it's imperative to have the legal elements of your music taken care of for for a variety of reasons. Today, we're going to share how to get your business affairs together, and business affairs means legal. But before we do, I also want to thank Downtown for their support of this episode. Downtown's mission is to shift the power center of the music industry into the hands of those who create and those that support that creation by giving them the finest and most comprehensive set of tools and services. Downtown is committed to building a more equitable music business. They believe in partnership, advocacy, and helping musicians develop sustainable careers so they don't require their clients to give up any of their copyrights. Okay, so today we're going to talk about legal and your music, you know, every musician's favorite topic. I'm going to do kind of an overview on this um, before bringing Jessica on, and then you'll have time for Q&A, most likely with with me at at the end, um, because Jessica has a hard out. Um, So that's why I'm going to roll through this stuff. Um, You have your free um, manuscript notebooks from Hal Leonard, so feel free to jot down um, any questions for the end. Okay, so here we go. There are two main rights in music. I know we don't have a mic in the audience right now, but does anyone know what those two main rights are? Yeah. Right to share and mastering. What was the first one? Uh, like publishing and mastering. Yeah, that's right. So the recording and songwriting. So if you get paid $1,000 for a sync, 500, you know, sync placement, a song and film, TV, a commercial, 500 is going to go to whoever owns the recording and 500 is going to go to the songwriters. Very good. Um, so if you are, you know, creating your own recording, paying for everything, you own it. Okay. So you own your recording a hundred percent. If you are with an indie label, that's generally going to be 50, 50, 50% of the recording royalties will go to the label. 50% go to you. There are some indies that take a little bit more, but that's, that's generally speaking, And then if you're with a major label, that's going to be like 90% in their favor, 10% to you, and that's all negotiable. Um, Both with indies and majors, you know, with indie labels, generally you own the recording. There are plenty of established indies that um, own your recordings, you know, forever in perpetuity. And then with major labels, more often than not, they're going to own your recording in perpetuity and likely ask for publishing rights, touring rights, merch rights. Um, You know, that said, you can also build yourself up and put yourself in the best leverage leverage position to be able to license your music. Um, I interviewed Freddie Gibbs manager Lambo a couple years ago, and they, they built, you know, they built up. Uh, Freddie's career over the past decade and now license uh, his releases to major labels, which is an amazing position to be in. So um, I'm going to talk about producers for a minute um, and how producers are, are generally compensated. So producers are usually paid cash plus a percentage on the recording, okay? 
Um, points is another word for percentage. So I'm going to use those words um, interchangeably. So like, you know, the Rick Rubens of the world are going to receive 5% on the recording. Um, I've worked with artists who are in big bands and groups, but also produce. Those guys are kind of four point producers. I mean, as hopefully a good manager, I might try to argue for five, but realistically, they're probably more in the four point range. Um, you know, someone who's a pro producer, but not like a Rick Rubin or a, a big public name is going to be more of a 3% producer. Someone who's newer is going to be closer to 2%. And someone who's just getting going is, is 1%. So, you know, for context, I've worked with, you know, um, large indie and, and rock uh, producers that receive anywhere from $1,000 to $1,500 a track to produce, plus, like I said, four to five percent um, producer points on the recording side. Now, in my experience, and again, this is more in indie, rock, singer, songwriter world, um, if, if the producers I'm managing and work with, uh, you know, write on something that they're producing, then they get a cut of the songwriting as, as well. But these guys don't ask for it otherwise, even though they probably could. They could come in and be like, I'm an X huge band, you know, like, so I get 20% of all the songwriting no matter what. Um, I've been really fortunate to work with big producers slash artists slash songwriters that are like, I wrote 20%, I get 20%, or I wrote 5%, or I wrote, uh, or, or I wrote uh, 90%, you know, whatever the real splits are. And we'll talk in a minute about, um, you know, how, how, to, how to handle songwriting splits, but this can also vary, you know, genre to genre. So if, if folks recall last season, um, we interviewed uh, Carl Folk's Esquire for this episode, you know, who was sharing that in hip hop, uh, most hip hop producers were all, will also be asking for a cut of your songwriting and publishing. And that's gonna be a little bit more standard in that genre, right? So, that said, this is all negotiable. So be wary of someone wanting, you know, cash plus 50% of your recordings plus 50% of your songwriting slash publishing on songs they didn't write on. Now, you know, if it's say Kendrick Lamar or Jay-Z or someone that's going to add legitimate name power to your release and they are asking for you know, these larger percentages, like that's probably worth it, right? So that's why this stuff is all negotiable. But if it's someone that doesn't have that kind of track record and they're asking for 50% of songwriting slash publishing, 50% um, on your recordings, plus a huge cash fee up front, um, I rec recommend negotiating that all down. So, you know, everything I do in this book and podcast is, is for everyone, and I, I, or I want to make sure it's available for everyone, whether you have cash or not. So say that you legitimately do not have cash to pay a producer. Because you likely own your recording rights, this is where, this is something I love about the modern music industry because you can get really creative with compensation. So, you know, I talked about how someone like, you know, Rick Rubin's going to get 5% on the recording. Um, you know, for being like one of the top producers in the world. So if you have no cash, see if a, produ a producer's up for 10% on, on the recording, you know? Um, obviously that would be twice as much as what some of the biggest producers in, in the world are getting. Uh, you know, 
That also said, I would, I'd, I'd like to see you hold on to at least 50% of um, the royalties on your recordings because that's what an indie label would receive. And that's essentially what you're doing here. You're setting up, you know, your own label that, that you own. So know that some, I was hoping my attorney would be here today, but of course she's working. Um, cause I'd be curious to get her feedback on this. Cause we talk about this a lot. There are, there are a lot of producer attorneys that are going to push back on what I said. Um, because they're going to say, oh, you're not signed. So that means the producer should get, you know, 50% or some super high, uh, percentage. Personally, I think that is really antiquated and old fashioned because there are so many artists and teams that own and run their own labels and, and even hire, you know, traditional, uh, radio, traditional PR, the same, uh, mechanisms that would be in place if you were signed. So I personally don't think that should affect um, the producer deal. And again, that's coming from someone that um, still manages producers. So um, if you do get pushed back on, you know, by a producer attorney, though, um, you definitely need to make sure that you are represented. So legally, um, and we'll talk more about that in episode 12. Um, when do I need an attorney, business manager, uh, or manager defining an artist traditional team? But in the meantime, if you get handed a producer agreement and there's an attorney on the other side, um, you can reach out to Volunteer Lawyers for the Arts, which is a great resource um, for folks without budgets. And I personally love many of the attorneys that are at Women in Music. Um, so if you want to reach out to Women in Music, they have a lot of great um, attorney members, um, and you could reach out to them for a referral there. Uh, volunteer lawyers for the arts. Yeah. Okay. So that's producers. Um, recording engineers are also generally paid cash. Again, if you truly do not have cash, this is where you can get creative with points on your recording because you own it. So engineers don't generally receive a percentage on, on recordings. Um, so something like 5% is more than generous here. And again, you can get creative with it. Say you can only afford, like truly afford half of their cash rate. You could offer them half the cash rate plus 2.5 points, right? Um, you know, and, and see if they're up um, for that to help make up for the balance. And you can do the same thing for any players on your record. Um, and in an, in an ideal world, obviously, the folks that you're hiring to be on the recording are paid, um, you know, cash up front. But, you know, if it's not an option, same thing. You know, you can get creative here and, and offer them points on the record. So what does this look like in reality? Say you have a producer, an engineer, four players, and truly no cash. Um, which is also assuming you or the producer are going to mix, you know, the music and that, you know, you're using, say, mastering software. Not that we don't love mix and mastering engineers, but this is a hypothetical uh, no cash situation. So you could pay the engineer 5% on the recordings and then split the remaining 45% between the producer and four players, which would give the producer and players 9% each. And then you would keep the remaining 50% because it's your indie label. And again, this is all negotiable. This is all stuff you can, you can play around with. 
Um, but whether you have cash up front or not, you need to discuss these terms with, with each person before you hit the studio. So you guys can come to an agreement and then let them know you will be sign you will be sending them a work for hire agreement that says you own the recording. Um, and then you will also be sending them 50% of payment if there is um, cash happening. And then they will receive the the remaining 50% um, payment when you receive the signed work for hire agreement, as well as all the recordings, instrumentals, and stems for the producer. So let me reiterate that. The work for hire agreement, which you can get through CoSign, which we're going to talk about with Jess in a, in a minute, um, says that you own the recording. And really, anyone that sets foot into the studio, players, engineers, your mom, friends, whatever, needs to sign a work for hire, okay? Because otherwise, this can cause problems for you down the line. Um, I know this happened to, like, Lauren Hill when she had her huge album in the late 90s. Like, you know, folks come out of the woodwork like, oh, well, I wrote this beat or I, you know, I contribute, contributed to that track. So you need to make sure that's all buttoned up. It's totally standard. Um, anyone that, you know, is weird about signing a work for hire might be, I mean, you could just, you, we want to educate, right? But um, that could be a sign that they might be difficult to work with, um, you know, further down the line because it's it's totally standard. But again, pay them if, if, you're, if you have cash, 50% of what you agreed to along with the work for hire and then let them know you'll pay the balance when you get the signed work for hire back because then that incentivizes them to get that paperwork done, which is, which is really important for you. Um, so on mixing engineers, if you are hiring a mixing engineer, know that um, their ranges are enormous, anywhere from $100 a track up to like $20,000 a track, depending on their experience. They're also generally entitled to 1% on the recording. And like I said, they also need to sign a work for hire. Work for hire, work for hire, work for hire. Everyone needs to sign a work for hire. And then with mastering, that can range anywhere from $300 to $3,000. And our next episode is how to record with or without a budget. So we're going to do a deeper dive on, on all this stuff. Um, but I just wanted to cover the business affairs elements. Engineers should also sign a work for hire if you uh, are seeing a theme here. Um, and like I said, anyone who's anywhere near your music throughout the recording process should sign one. Should sign one as well. There are mastering engineers I love, but as you know, if this is something you can't afford, there is mastering software um, available. So again, have these conversations verbally, you know, with your producer, with players, any engineers, and more. Once the terms have been discussed and agreed to, along with. Uh, Along with the discussion and sending them a work for hire, they will need to respond uh, to confirm the terms, okay? So when you have this conversation, let them know, hey, I'm going to send this to you in an, in, an, in an email along with the work for hire. Um, please respond and confirm the terms. And that is as legally binding as spending $1, thousands of dollars um, on an agreement. And... I would recommend not texting this stuff because, you know, I've lost messages in I, iCloud and if it's not in iCloud, you know, if you lose your phone or whatever. So just throw it in an email if you, after you have this conversation and make sure everyone agrees to the terms. Um, so just a few things before I bring Jess out. Um, I mentioned songwriting splits. 
Um, so just like in life, communication is queen. And you need to sit down with anyone that's... So if you wrote the songs, you need to sit down with anyone that's going to enter the studio. And this is what I recommend. Um, let them know, I wrote these songs. If you feel you contribute to the songwriting process at any time, let me know immediately after the session and we can figure it out. Because when you don't have that method in place or any sort of protocol in place, they can make assumptions. You know, maybe six months later, they're like, oh, I actually wrote on that. This can breed resentment. This can hold up releases. This can, this can cause a whole bunch of problems. Um, so just make sure that you have a process in place um, for songwriting. So if you're going that route, um, after you have the conversation, um, you know, if, if you've been approached by a player like, hey, I, I think I wrote on that, you know, what do you think? Work out the splits and then um, same thing, throw it in an email, you know, let the person know, okay, you know, we're splitting that 60-40 or 80-20 or, or whatever. I'm going to throw this in an email to you. And if you could respond um, and confirm the songwriting splits, that would be great. Um, the old school way is a split sheet. So that would literally be a physical piece of paper where you write down, um, you know, the percentage that you each wrote and then you sign it. I'm, I'm just like, well, what if water gets spilled on it or whatever, right? And I, I think Jess has um, some more modern ways to do that at, at CoSigned um, that, that can be shared as well. And of course, there are a few other ways to, you know, handle songwriting splits. So if you're going into a co-writing situation, and, you know, you decide, okay, we're just going to do, do this 50-50, you know, kind of Lennon-McCartney style. Um, you know, you can pre-agree to that before you um, head into the room. And, of course, there are pop stars, you know, that often get songwriting cuts on um, music they didn't write on because they, you know, we know they're going to turn it into a huge pop hit. So I'm not opposed to any of that. Um, but regardless, if, if you wrote the songs and you're hitting the studio, make sure you have a, a process in place um, to sort out the co-writing splits, you know, with anyone that's, you know, working with you and that um, you also memorialize it after that conversation into an email. Um, so just two last things, uh, oh, three last things, actually, uh, before we bring Jess out. Um, I just want to cover uh, remixing and and arranging. And I, I should also add, remixing or arranging is not songwriting, okay? That's something that I remember from music school, so please keep that in mind. And not to jump around too much, um, but also when you're doing um, songwriting splits and your work for hire agreements, um, especially on the songwriting side, if, uh, if you can ask your co-writer if they are okay with their music being pre-cleared for sync, um, normally the songwriters, uh, you would have to get the songwriters permission when a sync is landed. And this is going to free that person up to be on yoga retreat or off devices or on a fishing trip or whatever, because we will do a deeper dive into sync in episode five. Um, but that world moves very, very fast. So if your co-writer, if your co-writer is not available to approve that sync, um, the music supervisor might just move on to someone else because they don't have time to deal. And it's also very attractive um, for whoever is pitching, you know, your music to sync and to music supervisors um, for them to know that the songwriting side is pre-cleared because if a music supervisor looks at a track and it has multiple songwriters, it's like, oh, I'm not going to have time to clear all this, right? 
Um, so it's very attractive if your sync pitching person or your publisher um, can say, oh, actually, that's all pre-cleared. Um, you know, so you just have to you just have to go through me. Okay, so remixers and arrangers um, are generally paid a flat fee. Um, they too must sign a work for hire agreement. And again, they don't usually get, you know, a percentage on recordings, but if you truly have no cash, you know, you could get creative here. So maybe like 2.5 to 5% um, on remixing. I would say remixing and arranging for that. And maybe even, you know, upwards of 50% on remixing if it's like Lil Wayne is remixing your track, right? Like that's going to be huge. And um, that's a huge name to add to it and, and really help um, get the song out there. Now, if you are releasing a cover song, um, if you're playing a cover song live, you can play a cover song live anywhere unless it's a no cover venue because they're not paying their um, uh, PRO, their performing rights organization fees, most likely. Um, but generally, you can play you know, any song live. You can cover any song live in a live setting. Um, but if you're releasing a cover song, you need to purchase a mechanical license from the Harry Fox Agency. And if you go to Harry Fox's website, it will help you estimate how many streams you might have of that song so it can give you a price to make sure that songwriter is taken care of. Um, Harry Fox has you know, the majority of songs, but if you can't find the song you're looking to cover, um, you could reach out to that artist publisher. If you can't find that, um, contact the artist team or contact the artist and they can help you out with a mechanical license. Um, and finally, you know, for this overview, overview part, um, this is a good time to put a group or band agreement together if you're in a band or group. So again, I personally feel that the songwriting split should really be the songwriting split. So, you know, if someone wrote 30%, someone else wrote 50%, someone wrote 20%, that's something you can figure out, um, you know, with each track. But um, when it comes to everything else, like who's ever paying for, uh, you know, recordings, gas, hotels while touring should be paid back, obviously. Um, but then you can split, I would recommend splitting any income after that. So any income, you know, on the recordings, on sync, you know, after any recording expenses have been recouped, um, you know, splitting everything on merch after any merch costs have been recouped. And we'll do a deeper dive on merch in um, episode 10, I believe. Um, but you get the idea. So um, talk about it, you know, with your band or group, just like everything else we discussed. And when you come to an agreement, like, okay, this is how we're going to handle songwriting. And this is how we're going to handle, you know, uh, money and expenses, right? Like making sure folks get paid back and then splitting it equally, or maybe keeping like 50% of what you make in reserve, right? Like in the band or group's account. So you have that float, um, you know, for future band or group expenses. So after you've had that conversation, throw it in an email, get everyone to agree to it. And again, that's as legally binding as spending thousands of dollars on an agreement. So um, I can't stress enough, communication is queen. Um, I know nobody likes talking about money. Um, I know nobody likes talking, period. But it's going to help you in the long term to have these conversations and make sure that everyone's on the same page and that, and that they know how this is, this is going to work. Okay? So again, I know that's a lot. Um, we'll have time for questions on this at the end. So feel free to just you know, jot down any, any questions that you might have. 
um, because now it's time to bring out our esteemed guests, Jessica. Of course, I've been saying your last name right the whole time until I'm up here, Sabraj, right? Yeah, you got it. Great. Jessica Sabraj is the co-founder and CEO of CoSign. I'm just going to share a little bit about that. CoSigned empowers creators and businesses to safeguard their work by offering copyright-related legal documents and more. With more than a decade of experience, Jessica has established herself as a respected authority in creators' rights and licensing intellectual property in the music industry. She's also a passionate advocate for gender equality. Jessica has been president of Women in Music and serves as an advisor to Women in Music's board. Previously, Jessica led strategic traditional licensing opportunities for music micro-licensing pioneers Rumblefish and served as the manager of digital content licensing for the performance rights organization CSAC. She also serves on the advisory boards of Sound Thinking for Girls, one of my favorite organizations in the world, and Key Change US, and is an advisor to our friends at the New York City Mayor's Office of Media and Entertainment. Welcome, Jessica. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Yeah. Hi. So you began your career at a law firm. What drew you to that field? Uh, So funny. I actually started out as a summer intern helping out to manage the summer associates that were coming in. And I got that job, that internship, because I was on the law team in high school. So I I guess this kind of like legal-esque theme has always been, you know, a a, a point of passion for me. I can't say that I followed through and became a lawyer because I didn't. I just ended up building cool tech for lawyers, and that's kind of what we do. Um, But funny enough, my boss, Kelly Hoey, from that job at White & Case, ended up becoming one of our main advisors at CoSigned. I don't know, 20 years later. So it all comes back full circle. It is the smallest world ever. I won't get too into this, but April, our photographer said to me on Friday, like, oh, I'm working for Kathy at Warner's and she had dinner with you and the Dresden Dolls in the Netherlands 15 years ago. I'm like, yeah, that's how it works. So yeah, I think you and I met initially at Medem in the south of France. And there's like this picture of us together with Wyclef Jean on the beach somewhere. And it's amazing. <laughs> Do you remember that story, by the way? I feel like one of us or all of us crashed that situation. Is that what happened? There, there was some something. So to be totally honest, you and your awesome like whim crew, it was like newer people to whims leadership. And you guys were like, oh, we want to ask for a photo, but we don't want to bother. I'm like, we're asking him for a photo. Yes, she did that. That's you right. Know? It's coming back now. Yeah, because I was just a little bit older, older than you guys. And again, like we don't have time for this story, but like <laughs> I keep talking about how I'm obsessed with Oasis, but... I was on tour with the Dresden Dolls and Nine Inch Nails, and we were playing a huge um, festival. And I don't know if it was huge, but whatever. We were playing a festival in Germany, and I didn't even tell. I didn't. I didn't remember telling anyone in the Nine Inch Nails crew like how obsessed I was. But they were coming up to me like, "Did Did you meet him yet?" And so Oasis came in like to the backstage dressing room, and then I had your reaction, which was, yeah. "Oh, I, I don't want to bother them." Yeah, it's too cool. It's too cool. It's okay. And the drummer from Nine Inch Nails said, and this is what I said to you ladies that night: "If not now, when?" Yes, that's exactly how it went down. And now we have the photo proof, and Emily's there, just like I made this happen. Well, I just glad <laughs> you guys got it because um, you deserved it for wow. Wham and yeah, yeah. all that the great fun work one. you were doing. Absolutely. Um, so from from there, from the law firm, you moved on to become a social media consultant at Peacefire. So you've, you kind of already alluded to this, but how has working in modern technology shaped your career? Oh, it's been it's been present from the very beginning. Peacefire was an interesting organization because at that time, there were all of these schools that were blocking access to music websites and like all these things that like kids really wanted to access, but 
the blockers at that time were very black and white. There was, there was no room. It's like you could look at science websites or check the weather. That's it. So Peacefire was this uh, company that built one of the first sets of proxies. And I was tasked with the you know, job, legal or not, of getting these proxies to the kids at school so they could go and like check email and do the things they wanted to do and communicate. And when I joined, I think it was only being used in a handful of schools and then it grew, like it quadrupled almost overnight. And I think from there we had a bunch of other things that popped up, but it's it's so near and dear that that idea of just like disrupting something that that shouldn't be but is and how do we undo it and make it better and safer. Well, you've certainly done that throughout your career. <laughs> How did you get involved with A2IM, the American Association of Independent Music? And it's also Indie Week next week, so yes. shout out to that. Yeah, shout out to Indie Week and everybody at A2IM. Um, I think I was pulled into A2IM by Jim Mahoney. You probably know Jim, right? Jim is like this incredible, lovable, like big bear of a guy, but just like knows everything and everyone. And so he and I met when I was at another licensing company, and he said, hey, I think you've got... Um, some chutzpah, why don't you come aboard and help us, you know, deal with some of our committees. And I did for a little bit of time, you know, full circle, A2IM is now one of our biggest partners at Cosign. We're kind of their de facto go-to to for all these labels to get their catalogs registered and assessed. And we'll probably touch on it, but one of the, one of the big things for labels when it comes to registration of their copyrights with the Copyright Office is they don't actually know what's been registered already you know, that task always falls to the hands of interns or like associates who are no longer around. There are these big lead times in between when you file and actually get a certificate. So you may not know what's there. And we've been helping A2IM's labels do that research for free. Wow. Yeah. I love that. You also spent six years and had a meteoric rise at Sir Groovy, which you co-founded which is an award-winning music licensing firm clearing over 50,000 copyrights for everyone from major TV networks to social media flat platforms to the New York Yankees. So tell us about your time there and, and what did you learn? You did so much there. Yeah, I started out as an intern and I think when I left, I was chief content officer, which is one of those like, what, how did that happen? But there's a lot of stuff in between that happened. Um, and there, that's really where I learned the business of sync licensing in and out. I had no experience whatsoever in, in the music industry at that point, right? And so I think I heard you say in a former podcast, it's about rolling your sleeves up and like getting on Google and soaking up all the things you can soak up. And through that company is where I learned the initial basics of licensing. And my job in particular was actually building out our supplier chain. So at that time, way early in the sync days, if you wanted authentic music from like Russia or New Zealand or Africa, you would most likely settle for something inauthentic from a production library, which probably still is the case for some places. My job was to actually get into those countries and source the real music from the real artists. So my favorite, favorite deal that I did there was an AT&T commercial, like way, way back, that was uh, looking for music from a boys' Russian choir um, that had to be all like cathedral and big voices. And it was from a specific like monastery or something. And we got it. Wow. Mm -hmm. I love that. Yeah. And sync, of course, is, is short for synchronization. So it's literally syncing your music to picture. Um, so I alluded to that before, you know, film, TV, web ads. And we'll do a deeper dive um, on that in episode five. 
So we don't have time to get into your work at Victor Prime, but this is another entity that you co-founded. Yeah. What are your motivations for being an entrepreneur? So Victor Prime was actually born out of Sir Groovy. It was the same team. It was all of us just kind of being in the music business and the, the um, TV business. I, you know, I, like my first job was working at my parents' convenience store when I was seven. I was the kid behind the, the cash register who was, you know, selling cigarettes and probably in retrospect was like not the best parenting decision, but it taught me a lot. Um, yeah, and so I've always had that, that, you know, that bug of just wanting to get in there, roll my sleeves up, do it myself, and I come from a long line of entrepreneurs, so it was, you know, easy peasy for me. That being said, I absolutely loved being in organizations like CSAC and Rumblefish, though. And, like, so what did working at the convenience store teach? I love stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there was free chocolate every day. Like, that's not going to be a bad thing. Um, you know, it was a lot of responsibility. I was there after schools, and I remember, like, being the kid who would just help out with everything. So, like, mm -hmm. stocking shelves, helping to bag stuff, ringing stuff up, and the customers would come in and be like, excuse me, uh, is anybody back? Oh, there's a child back here. <laughs> Can I get the DeMaurier Slim Lights? It was in Canada, so, you yeah. know, we had French cigarettes, blah, blah, blah. Um, but, yeah, I, you know, it was definitely a time in my life that I treasure more than anything because I wow. think those are those, those years when you really, one, um, get to see your parents and, and them doing the hard work and rolling the sleeves up and being it in yourself really, like, makes you feel a part of that journey and that story. I love that. And I might be weird, but I look for that kind of stuff on resumes because yeah. to me, it shows like customer service skills. You know yeah. how to talk to people. You know how to interact. You know how to engage. You know how to problem solve. Yeah, you know? absolutely. And like when we go back to Toronto, my husband and I will always stop by that store just to take a peek and see, you know, what's changed and what's not. Aww, yeah. Love that. So Victor Prime might have taken you out of music a little bit. I'm sure you were kind of the music person there. Yeah. Um, but what drew you back into becoming the manager of digital content licensing at CSAC? That was an interesting time for me. So I left Sir Groovy maybe in like 2012 or something like that. And I was an independent consultant for a little while. Um, I was having uh, some issues with my family in terms of needing to be there for a specific grandparent who had a failing health issue. And I didn't have the flexibility to have a full-time job. So being con a consultant really gave me that ability to set my own schedule. And uh, I knew um, Hunter Williams at CSAC really well, who I think now is at Source Audio. And when I left Sir Groovy, Hunter said, hey, I hear you're a free agent. I said, yeah, but I'm not working, but I really like you. <laughs> so let me know what you've got going on. And I ended up being a consultant specifically in the track of whether or not CSAC should buy or build their own sync licensing storefront. And now we all know we ended up buying, which was Rumblefish. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And so again, CSAC is a performing rights organization. Um, so that's going to help you collect uh, royalties on your songwriting. And we're going to do a deeper dive on that in episode five. Um, but I know we have a lot of international listeners as well. So CSAC is one of the um, performing rights organizations in the United States. Uh, well, you mentioned Rumblefish. Uh, what led to your business affairs work there? So we were going through the process at the time at CSAC of, of looking at a number of different companies in the space. CSAC then was in that buying phase. Mm -hmm. um, and there were so many things, like so many different libraries that were coming across. And at the same time, CSAC was also building its own brand new sync storefront, like from scratch. 
And I think that the overall consensus was that it would just be better to just buy an existing company who's got the wherewithal and the existing clients and content. And that ended up being Rumblefish, which was founded by, um, oh my gosh, why am I blanking on his name? Paul. I only know him as Paul. Like, Paul's just awesome. Um, Paul oh. Trevino. Oh, yeah. I was going to say Paul the founder. Paul the founder, <laughs> Paul Trevino. Uh, and so I think when, when CSAC first acquired Rumblefish, they were doing thousands of micro licenses a day. And micro licenses is, you know, YouTube licensing. But at that time, Rumblefish was the only game in town. So all the YouTube licensing was going through there, the GoPro stuff, the Animoto, like Flickr, like all of it, all of that early stage stuff was going through Rumblefish. And it was an incredible company to be at. And some of my coworkers from there and I are still friends to this day and working at other things. You know, one of them is... Um, a big wig over at Downtown Holco and was the former part, the uh, former head of strategic partnerships at CD Baby, and he and I are still like this. So it, you know, it all comes full circle. Yeah, and we're here because of Downtown, actually. They're yeah, there you go. So, <laughs> grateful, grateful to them for that and all the awesome work they do. So you've worked as a gender consultant for Caribbean Development Bank, an advisor for Sound Thinking for Girls. Which actually, let me pause that there. So. Mm -hmm. Um, Sound Thinking is an incredible program um, that the New York City Mayor's Office of Media and Entertainment um, puts on. It's a, it's basically a free like boot camp for New York City youth interested in the music industry. So um, yeah, just it's one of my favorite things in yep. the world. Um, and you've also served as president and advisor at Women in Music. So what needs to be done, I know this is a really broad question, but what needs to be done to support women and non-binary folks professionally from their teenage years throughout their professional careers? Well, one, thank you for the WIM shout out in the beginning. That, that was amazing. And it really is this amazing group where you can find resources for anything. And it's open to everybody, yeah. every gender. So I recommend that you all go out and, and check out WIM and sign up. Um, you know, I think that they're... The, the common theme is going to be support, and yeah. that comes in different stages and different tranches and looks different for different people. I think in those beginning years, teenage and up, it's about really allowing teenagers to explore the possibilities that are out there. You know, it's, it's not so black and white. It's not one size fits all. It's not these are the top three careers you should aim for. That's what I love about Sound Thinking for Girls is because it really opens up the minds of these, these teenagers to the different ways you can make money in the music industry. You know, it's, it's not all about the glitz and the glam. They, they get to go to publishers and go to record labels and go visit lawyers and visit us and boring copyright stuff. Like, there's, there's a lot more that can be done. So I think at that stage, it's really about just broadening horizons and allowing teenagers to kind of figure it out for themselves without, you know, giving our, our impressions on them. Later on, I think when you enter the professional workforce, there's mm -hmm. a lot more work. Um, that needs to happen. And, you know, I started 10 years ago, 10 plus years ago, I'm going to date myself, and it certainly has gotten better for genders across the board, but there's still so much work to be done. And I think a huge chunk of that is holding companies accountable. Mm -hmm. You know, we've, we've had a lot of reports issued. We've taken the time to look at all of the assessments. We've, you know, created little groups within our little groups. And we've tried our best to really um, be, be on trend, right, in terms of leading that charge. But at the end of the day, there's still this, so what now? What are we going to do about it? How do we carry it on? Mm -hmm. I had a conversation with a new friend who's 
like the head of diversity and inclusion for a huge, huge tech company. And she said, hey, Jess, look, we have 4,000 employees, but there's only two of us that are in charge of this initiative. And by the time we issue all the reports and like check all the boxes, it's December and we have to start all over again. So something I'm really interested in right now is finding a way to pull together all of the leading experts in, in DEI and figuring out how do we communicate what's been working for one company yeah. and, and get that implemented in the other companies where it's not working. Because we're at a place now where we can share this information, mm -hmm. but it's not about the information itself. It's about the action on the information. I love that. And again, like, you know, the Sound Thinking program is so great. And I, I know we're biased being here in New York City, but I meet these students um, who kind of take for granted that they're in New York City because yeah. they grew up here. And But I think we take for granted where we're from no matter what. Like I'm from a village in Wisconsin where I used to say there was no music industry, but my parents were really good friends, still are really good friends with the folks who owned the music shop in town. Yeah. And I totally took for granted until recently um, that Ellen McDonald, one of those people, is on the board of NAM. you know? <laughs> yeah. so there's like people, there's often people all around, um, you know, and you don't realize it. And these programs are so important because- you know, I meet so many um, undergrad students and, and um, it just seems to be a confidence issue mm -hmm. um, with, with women and non-binary students. Like they'll come up to me and be like, I'm interning here. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. But I don't I don't think I'm blank enough. And it's always just like some random. Uh, adjective. Yeah. And I'm yeah. like, you seem awesome. What genuinely like you yeah. seem awesome. What, and then they're like, fine. You yeah. Know? Yeah. I think a lot of it is validation. It's yeah. the imposter syndrome stuff. It's the I'm not blank enough stuff. And it's, you know, it's. I think those are the moments when our community can come together and yeah. do exactly what you did, which is support and say, actually, yeah, you are. You are that enough to do this. And it's that little push of confidence that I think goes all the way. Even, you know, even now I still have those moments too where I'm like, oh, I don't, I don't know about this. I don't know if I should like step up and do this. And, yeah. you know, our COO, Liz Cimarelli, is my biggest champion in the world because she's the one who gives me a kick in the pants and says, you better get up there and do it. Yep. You can do it. So it's, it's that kind of camaraderie that I think is, is needed, not just, you know, in our industry, but like mm -hmm. across the board, I feel like the world is in such a crazy, crazy mental state and we need to just support and be there for each other. Yeah. And that's why that core team is, yeah. is so important. And, you know, I hear from other executives, you know, because I, I some of you know, I run a nonprofit called I Voted. Um, our C-suite's all women. Our overall team is 92% women, non-binary, LGBTQ+, awesome. um, uh, or BIPOC. And I hear from people all the time, like, how'd you build such a diverse team? And like, we put a little effort into it, but to be totally honest, they see themselves, our, our team sees themselves reflected in leadership. Yeah. So if you want to learn how to build a diverse team, you need to hire and promote um, diverse folks. Yeah, it's the visibility. That's that's everything. We're 80% female, 60% minority, 20% military. And I think, I co-sign, I think at WIM, there are hundreds of volunteers um, and they're, they come from all over the world and, you know, all different, everything, every box checked. And I love that because that is the spirit that drives that community to do these incredible things. It's the representation and the visibility and the camaraderie. Exactly. Um, so one last question before we get into co-signed on, you know, your extraordinary career. <laughs> what is Sparkplug Marketplace? So Sparkplug Marketplace was a company that was co-founded by our general counsel a handful of years ago, Jennifer Newman Sharp. And Sparkplug was essentially the marketplace to rent instruments. Mm -hmm. So I served as an advisor to Sparkplug, and I believe they 
exited the company and it was acquired by another company whose name is escaping me back in 2018. So, um, you know, that that company, I think, was also very groundbreaking because at the time there wasn't there wasn't anything where you could do that except maybe sketchy Craigslist. And Sparkplug was really taking the effort to uh, to vet everything and make sure everything was on the up and up. And it was it was, I guess, you know, akin to like the Airbnb just for our industry for instruments. Yeah. So cool. Yeah. Okay, so on to cosigns. And, you know, for those that have been listening to this podcast, we for this episode, Get Your Business Affairs Together, we had Don Passman on season one. We had Carl Folks on season two. Um, but for those that might not have access to Taylor Swift and Adele's attorneys <laughs> or be able to afford Carl, um, you know, what is cosigned? So cosigned is one of the fastest and keyword most affordable ways to protect yourself end to end. We do that in two ways. The first way is we help you create the very basic agreements that you need to protect your release, A to Z, top to bottom. And the second way is by helping you to register your works with the U.S. Copyright Office, which is now something that's mandatory that you have to do if you want to enforce your rights through litigation or lawsuit. I see a lot of you are picking up your head like, wait, what? That happened? Yes, that happened. So gone are the days where you can, you know, go file a lawsuit in small claims court or federal court with nothing, you now have to make sure your work is registered before you can do so, and it pays off in big ways, because if you register before your work is infringed, you're guaranteed $150,000 per willful infringement plus your attorney's fees. So that can add up to some wild, wild, wild pup money. (laughs) Okay, interesting, because I was just talking to an attorney. That's really interesting. I was just talking to an attorney about this. So say I have not registered my works with the Copyright Office and I do get sued. Can I go register really quick? So Yes, you can go register really quickly if you're the copyright owner, right? right? So you can do it, but if you do so and the infringement's already happened, the amount of money you can collect is kind of limited. Okay. So I believe it's like a cap of like $30,000 that's put on it and you have to make sure that you're proving the infringement was deliberate, deliberate in there. There's no attorney's fees and you can get back actual damages. So, you know, in some cases, you may have a hard time finding an attorney who's willing to take on the case yeah. if it's already been infringed and you're registering after the fact because a lot of the money you'll get back is probably going to be eaten by legal fees. Um, You know, that's if you're going the full distance in federal court. We do have a new small claims court for copyright that's available. And for that, you actually don't need to have an attorney. Totally recommended, but not required. And the filing fee to get into small claims court is only $100. So, but there's a cap of like $15,000 that you can can receive per case. So, you know, there are differences across the board. I didn't know that. Who's making those decisions in small claims court? So it's a tribunal of three judges. Uh, They can be an actual judge or just attorneys who are appointed who are really well-versed in IP. Interesting. But it'll be a quick decision and you're on your way. Yeah, wow. Yeah. So uh, what led you to co-found CoSign? Uh, I was at Rumblefish and... I think at that point I had been in sync licensing. Maybe that was my 10-year mark, actually. Oh, now you can look at my LinkedIn and see, like, how old I was and all this stuff. Um, But I remember thinking the corny words every entrepreneur thinks, which is there has to be a better way. I had probably seen my umpteenth deal just go down the drain 
because we weren't sure who the writers and the publishers were. When the works were submitted at that time, like sure, we knew who it was, but it had been like so many years later, we couldn't track down the people who actually presumably owned the works at that time. I think they were probably iceberg fishing in Alaska or something, I don't know. And it was really, really difficult. So I had a conversation with a bunch of artists from the WIM community. WIM is like the unofficial co-founder of Cosign. Like, that's women in music. Yes, yes. They're, you know, that's where we sourced all of our initial beta users from. And I asked them, hey, like, why, why don't we have documented anywhere who actually owns your works? Yeah. And 99% of them came back and said, it's too expensive. Like, it's just, I can't afford an attorney to do all these things. And so the, the baby idea of Cosign was a split sheet application that would allow you to create those split sheets digitally and allow you to continuously add to them. So you're not having to manage the gazillion pieces of paper that are probably going to get, you know, water spilled on them. And we snowballed from that one little split sheet app into an app that could do work for hire agreements, producer agreements, and collaboration agreements and allowing you to create a completely custom document but answers your questions and situates your, you know, your work in a way that's really easy to understand. So there's no crazy bells and whistles. It's, you know, our chief product officer is Cassidy Williams, who's one of the initial people who was on the front lines of designing Venmo. So our product is very like clean lines and meant to be not, you know, unapproachable because all things legal are unapproachable initially. So it sounds like all the agreements we covered at the beginning of this episode, you can get on Cosign. Except for the band agreement. And mm, the, really, yeah. the really interesting thing about our platform is that we allow you to invite your attorneys to review, edit, and redline those agreements. You have to be an attorney to actually edit them. And I think there are about 1,000 attorney profiles on the system already. Um, and, you know, that's key because we didn't want to build something that was akin to some of the things that are out now, which are very anti-attorney. I don't know why that process needs to be anti-attorney. It should not be. It's a collaborative process. And at the end of the day, you know, like Emily said, you really want to have someone who's in your corner who can work the nuances and, and craft something that's exactly what you want. Our platform can help you do that. But if you want to get super nitty gritty and if you want to make sure it says exactly what you want it to say, you're more than welcome to actually invite attorneys to review and edit inside the platform. I love that. And obviously... Cosign was built for music as opposed to like legal Zoom or something, which was yeah. in general. Yeah, it was initially built for music and then we became content agnostic. So you can use it to, you know, create documents that cover your artwork, your videos, images, literature. And that's that's mostly what we do for copyright registration. It started off as just being a service for labels and publishers and independent musicians. And now we cater to novelists and photographers and videographers and, you know, anything you can think of, even packaging is something you can register. So we're developing some tools specifically for vendors on some major retailers. Wow. Yeah. So great. Um, is there anything else you'd like to share about Cosign? Uh, go check it out. <laughs> go to Cosign.com for sure. Cosign. Yeah. You know, and I think we'll probably set something up for your community cool. as well, too, so that if you do want to register works or if you do want to create agreements, you'll be able to use Emily's discount and, awesome. and be able to do that. But I think the bottom line is really this all comes down to protecting yourself. You touched on it in the beginning. If you don't have these agreements in place, whoever is in the room, whether they wrote one word or the entire thing, is entitled to an equal share of ownership 
rights and revenue unless you have agreements in place that say otherwise. So I like to say, and I think you said it as well too, have these awkward conversations now about your rights and agreements because it saves you from having a really expensive conversation down the road. Yeah, I yeah. love that. And again, yeah, it, 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 I don't even think it has to be awkward. It's like, yeah, dumb. Yeah, like put, you know, put the um, yeah. process in the place because it's just. Oh, totally. Be, We're yeah. doing this thing in my marriage right now called radicalized honesty, and it's <laughs> really working. So I recommend radicalized honesty in the music business. Let's do that. Yes. And, you know, that's something I usually talk about with like management agreements and band and group agreements are the same. It's like you have this conversation like a prenup and then you want to put it in because it's like we're in love now and we want to put it in a drawer and, you know, God forbid, never yeah. touch it. But that's why you just want to sort this stuff out now so everyone is totally on the same page. Yeah. And then you're secretly getting up at night and pulling the drawer open. <laughs> are you there? <laughs> or that. That. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so one last question, and then we might have time for one or two questions um, from the audience for you. Can you tell us about the work you're doing at American Diabetes Association as well as the Alzheimer's Association? Yeah. So, I, you know, I'm not currently an active volunteer, but in my, my younger days, I was for the ADA. My dad was diabetic, and he ended up developing kidney disease and heart disease and needed a transplant of his kidney, which my mother ended up giving to him, which is like a one in a billion miracle that happens. Wow. And so, you know, in our culture in particular, diabetes is really rampant. And, you know, I spent the, the better part of my youth just trying to educate others about that fact and how we can take care of ourselves now to avoid having to, you know, go through those unfortunate circumstances down the road. Um, Alzheimer's is something that my husband's family is now recently touched by. Um, but somewhere in between when I left Sir Groovy and started at CSAC, I was the music supervisor on Be Here Now, which is the Andy Whitfield story. And Andy Whitfield was this incredible actor who was the lead in Spartacus at that time on Stars. Still one of those like shows that stands up against time. And Andy was diagnosed, um, you know, you know, way back when. And the the documentary that we worked on was really about how music, in particular, is one of those cures for really most medical diseases. You know, if, you, if you're able to call back a memory based on a song, that's more powerful than any Alzheimer's drug that's mm -hmm. out there. So I, you know, I highly recommend that you guys check out the film. Um, and if you are affected by Alzheimer's, please check out some of the options that are available for music therapy because they're wild. So cool. Thank yeah. you. So you, you do so much. How do you find balance? I don't know what that is. Like I, honestly, I was coming here. I got up at five this morning. I worked until one. I have a two-year-old mm -hmm. at home now, and I had a I had a pandemic baby. So you know, I was one of those people that just showed up at the family party, like, "Hey, I had a baby. That's new, right?" Um, but balance, I, I I'm working on it. It's harder now that I'm a mom because I do struggle with wanting to put my all into my first baby, which was co-signed, and now wanting to put my all into my, my first, 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 first baby, which is Logan. Um, and I think that the silver lining for me is even though I may not have the balance and I may be like super out of my mind first thing in the morning and panicky, mm -hmm. when I walk into that room and he's awake and he looks at me and I get to pick him up, that makes everything better. Like panic washes away, there's no anxiety, and I know we're gonna make it through this day because I got a dude for him. Mm -hmm. 
So balance, not quite there. Um, finding empathy for myself through my son, absolutely there. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. Love that. So we have time for one question for Jessica, and then you can ask me whatever about business affairs fun. So this is your time to ask Jessica anything about cosign, maybe like agreements you would like to see on cosign, yeah. see if they have them. Mark, Yancey. Ask a question. Yeah. Hi, I'm Yancy, and I'm gonna ask this question from my experience. So, I was working with this producer, and he didn't put anything financially in there, um, but he was always at the the sessions, and he did set it up for me. Um, but then he did ask. Sorry, I know we don't have a lot of time, but what does that mean? It's like you just decided to work together, and yes, then yes, he didn't. Yes, yeah. and we decided to work on a project together, mm-hmm. and. Um, he had asked for a certain percentage, but he never really had an input like mm. with the music itself or never even paid for any of the sessions. But in, to me, he kind of explained, well, the industry works like this. I still get uh. a percentage because I set it up. And, and I was like, okay, well, then here's your percentage. So my question is, should I have put my foot down and said, no, this is not fair? Or was that the correct thing? I would say that would have... That- Going forward, right, because we don't want to, like, look back and, you know, have any regrets or anything. But going forward, I think those are the moments where there's a great opportunity to say, you know what, I'm going to get back to you on that and then do all the things. Do all the homework, talk to all the attorneys you can, do all the free consults and gather your own information. But more importantly, go with your gut because your gut told you right away, "Uh uh-uh, that's not right. Mm -hmm. So I I would say it's definitely a gut check first and foremost and to not be afraid to stand up and say, actually, that's not what I believe. Because while there are some standards in the industry for sure, I think there are a lot of people who take advantage of up-and-coming artists and try to impose, like, this is the standard, this is what it is, when really it's the world's oyster, right? You could craft, craft an agreement that could say anything. You know, in some cases, there are no standards, so I would say absolutely know what you're worth and, and do the homework to back up that story. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah. I love it. Well, Jess, thank you so much for your time Anytime. today and all that you do. So <laughs> Anytime. Thanks you. for having me. Absolutely. Let's do it again. Yes. Anytime. <laughs> all righty. I'm Seattle. Do it. Um, you know, that was really great advice on, on moving forward. Uh, yeah, I mean, that that's why we're digging in on all this stuff. But, you know, I just want to reiterate, um, you know, how the producer said, oh, well, that's how it is in this industry. Like, again, something I love about the modern music industry is like you own and control your rights now so you can get creative, right? Like there are definitely some industry standards that make sense, I think. And again, we'll talk about this more on episode 12, like, you know, 15 to 20 percent of your manager or 15 to 20% commission for a manager um, makes sense. But being, you know, I've seen, thankfully not recently, but um, young people start labels and want to own recordings without any sort of advance because that's how it's always been. You know, like the cool thing about the modern music industry is you own your rights. So like I said at the beginning, that's like where you can get creative on these things instead of just being told like, "This this is how it is. You know, um, so that's the point of this podcast. That's the point of the book. This podcast was based on, you know, you, you have access to all this information. Obviously this podcast is free. Um, and then you can get creative with it. And I'll just add to that really quick. Um, I had manager Aaron Knight, um, who I know through Mark Tavern, who's in the audience today. 
um, on the season finale episode of um, season two of this podcast. And, you know, she's a manager. She's a booking agent. She does branding. Like, she's actually taking a higher commission because she's doing more things. Nobody, you know, she's not being pigeonholed into, like, well, managers only do this or the agent is over here or the branding person is over there, right? So I just, you know, I really want to emphasize um, that's such a cool part of the modern music industry is, is getting, getting creative with it. So that was a lot of business affairs information packed into, you know, one hour. So I just want to briefly touch on the topics that I mentioned at the beginning of the episode. And then if you guys have questions on that, you know, let me know. Um, so you crushed it on the two main rights in music. Lo- love to hear that. Um, any questions on how to, I, obviously, if you have questions on anything, feel free. Um, but we went over this stuff kind of fast, so I just wanted to review um, any questions on how producers are compensated? Yeah, get up, get up there to the mic, please. Um, yeah, so I have a question on on like what songwriting is because oh, I sure. know nowadays you know everything's very digital as yeah. far as like is it engineering, is it producing, yeah. is it songwriting? So could you just ex- explain that? Is songwriting just notes? Is it just melodies? Is it just lyrics? I don't think it should really make a difference. But what genre are you at? What kind of music do you make? Like pop. Okay. Yeah, pop rock. I, I mean, I think that's going to be pretty straightforward and that's going to come down to communication with your co-writers, you know? I mean, obviously, if there's a producer or co-writer that's like, well, I contributed this instrument or this beat or whatever, like, you guys are going to have to decide what is songwriting and what is producing and, and what isn't. But I think that's, you know, why it's even more important to have that conversation before you start to write together before you start to record, like, hey, I wrote these songs or we're going in to collaborate. Like, how do we want to handle songwriting splits instead of making something and then after the fact being like, oh, we need to figure that out, mm-hmm. you know? So I know that's, I mean, it's not, I know it's not a super clear answer because it's not a cut and dry thing and that's exactly what you're asking, but that's why the communication aspect is so important because otherwise you're going to make, you know, this awesome music and this amazing piece of art and then have to figure about it, figure it out after the fact. If you talk about it before, at least you have those communication channels open and have those mechanisms in place so you can sort it out immediately after the session. Right. Cool. All right. Thanks. I hope that's helpful. Yeah, no, that is. Okay. And then one more question. Sure, yeah. Okay? And then, you know, I was thinking about, you talked about like even like the top producers get like five points max. Yeah. But like what about like an album like, uh, like Billie Eilish only sure. has Phineas produces like everything. So yeah. he would only get five points on that album or like Olivia Rodrigo, like Dan Nigro did like everything. Yeah. You know? Well, I think the Olivia example might be a little bit better because um, I don't think those two, be- those two people are related. Right. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know what the Billy Phineas situation, I don't know if they have like separate attorneys or I'm sure it's just one because it's, I know the parents are involved and, um, and all that, but they're getting a producer fee as well. So um, whoever, you know, produced those artists is getting like, you know, thousands of dollars to do so plus the 5%. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. So it's not, I was giving scenarios like if you true, if you don't have thousands of dollars, right. Um, So then maybe you could do 10% because there's no cash, but it should be cash for a producer plus the percentage on the recording side. Um, And then in my experience, um, you know, the songwriting splits are the songwriting splits 
that's a little less the case in hip hop. And it can also be less the case in pop, like I said, because if you're writing for a big pop star, they may ask for a cut of songwriting because they're the one, you know, they and you know they're going to make it a huge song because they're because they're Taylor Swift or what. I mean, she writes her own music, but you know what I mean? Um, so, yeah, you just got to. Cool. All yeah. right, thanks. Yeah, so cash. Cash plus points is the ideal scenario. Yeah? Sorry. <laughs> and introduce yourself, please. How's it going, everyone? My name is Joshua Damata. I'm a multifaceted artist as well as a marketer, so both on the business side and on the music side of, of music. Um, my question is a follow-up on the how, especially if the scenario is like your everyday producer, like the bedroom producer setup where you're working with, you're, you're the producer and the artists you're working with are both independent. Yeah. No affiliations with any labels of any sort. Um, I know that I've seen in the traditional music industry similar numbers, like producers making around that 5% mark. Yeah. But what if it's a setup where on that particular song, the producer everything sonically about the beat, whether it's the artist's voice or whether it's all of the melodies and instruments and elements of the song yeah. were on the producer to create. Sure. And let's say there's no cash handoff because these individuals are usually doing this as like a side gig. So yeah. um, everything's decided in the splits between like the publishing and the songwriting. Have you seen that scenario before sure. since it's very common nowadays? And what does that split usually look like between publishing and between the record recording? Wanted to add a little bit more color to the yeah. same question. It's great. To me, it sounds like the producer is contributing to songwriting. So again, there's two main rights, right? You answered this, right? Yeah. So um, the recording side, the songwriting side. So you're already paying like, you know, five or maybe 10% if there's no cash for the producer on the recording side. Um, but what to me, what you just described is songwriting. So that's also part of that conversation. So then it's like, hey, you know, like you definitely wrote on that song or I felt like you wrote on that song. Let's figure out those splits because then the producer would be entitled um, to cuts on the songwriting side. So again, if they land, if a thousand dollar sync is landed, they're going to get 5% of that on the recording side, but say they wrote 20%, then they're going to get 20, you know, 200 bucks of that, or sorry, a um, hundred bucks of that 500 on the publishing side. That sounded a little confusing, but they're basically going to get cuts on both sides, if that makes sense. And to me, like, you know, those are the real songwriting splits and that's, that's what's happening here. So it's like, there's no cash, it sounds like. Um, so I would maybe double the producer points on the recording side, but then if the producer contributes to the songwriting, then you guys figure out what percentage of the songwriting they're getting. Um, and then they're also going to get a percentage on the publishing side. Okay. Thank you so much. Yeah, no problem. I might come back for like another time. All good. That's what we're here for. Yeah. Hi, my name is Drew, emerging artist. Um, quick question. Um, I was remembering the term uh, derivative works. Sure. Um, what, what is the definition of derivative works today, and yeah. especially in this world where, I mean, is everything derivative? I don't know. Yeah. It's kind of, it's, it gets very complicated. And 
Um, how does an artist manage that if they know they're coming into the studio with what they believe to be a derivative work? Not to be confused with a remix, but you actually know that this is something that is based on a known uh, work. Yeah, uh, is it only incumbent upon the artist to do the research and find out if this is sure. if the rights are still are, are you know available to the general public or if they have? Yeah, to when does that come into? That's a really good question. I might need Mark Tavern's help on this. Um, I think it would depend on what the derivative work is based on, you know? So, like, if it's based on a novel or something, that's going to be totally different than a track. But I think derivative works in music um, can walk a fine line of, like, is this a cover or is this a different arrangement, which would also be, like, a cover? I mean, do you have a specific example you could give? Well, I'm just picturing walking into the studio with something that, um, well, you gave a good example of uh, maybe uh, something that's derived from the title of a novel. Yeah. Uh, something that's just derived from anything, an, an inspiration mm-hmm. um, uh, that is copywritten in another form. Yeah. Um, you know, so is it incumbent upon me to then, you know, go in and do the rights ahead of time or when the sync licensor comes around, do I have to say, oh, by the way, uh, you know, this is something you need to look into, that kind of sure. thing. Sure. Um, double check with an attorney, but I'm pretty sure you could use a novel's title. I mean, that's totally fine. I think it would be way different though. And, um, you know, if it's a poem and you're just grabbing the words from the poem and turning that into the song, you know, like in that instance, I would definitely contact the poet or whoever or the author or whoever represents them. And, um, say, hey, I'm making this, you know, song using, it, it's their words, right? So to me, that definitely contributes to songwriting. So you could say, hey, I'm going to offer you, you know, X amount on the songwriting and and see what they say. Um, yeah, so I think it really just depends on like, are you using the actual work? Or frankly, James, who did my makeup today, um, is working on a book. I don't want to like totally leak it, but it's it's a modern take on a classic, right? And he's totally okay to do that. Um, just like, you know, Clue, the film Clueless is based on like Emma and Jane Austen, right? So I think like it's okay to do that. But if someone was just lifting Jane Austen and making a film out of that and using those words, you would have, to, I mean, that might be public domain. It might not though, but you'd have to like see what the right situation is. Um, does that help answer your question? Yes. Is there a use in mind? Is, is this an issue for you? Um, it, it, well, it just came up in the, in the conversation. I was thinking about yeah. the times that you come, you know, before you go into the studio. So, right. I mean, you know that, uh, that you have material and you know that you have material that, um, may be based in uh, something mm-hmm. that's that's written, uh, or it could be inspired yeah. by something that's already been copywritten. And so I'm just I'm just being mindful of all the things that um, you have to think of before you go into the studio yeah. and create something. Um, you know, I have a lot of things in my lyric book that I probably haven't thought about <laughs> you know, what, the, what the inspirations were, but it, I think it sounds like we need to be more mindful of that. Um, especially when the recording process. I mean, art, sorry to interrupt, but art is built on art. We all know this. Um, But like I said, to me, that's different from like, I'm taking these lyrics or I'm taking this poem or I'm taking this prose and turning that into a song. That to me, that's that's songwriting, even though the person 
might not be alive or wasn't in the room or whatever, um, you would definitely want to reach out to them about publishing so you don't get sued for lifting that poem or whatever. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. Absolutely. Yeah, get up there. I'm going to try to speak as much standard English as possible. <laughs> well, we do have listeners all over the world, so other languages are allowed to. Okay. Um, I seen that volunteer. I wrote down about the volunteer. Um, yep. So if, um, I've been wanting to do music for a long time, but I was too scared. But then I finally decided, I'm like, you know what? This is what I want to do. I'm all in. So if you want to get started, that's where I should start first, right? Because that's a lot of information. Yeah. And I'm trying to write down everything. I'm like, okay, I'm not going to remember all this. So that so that's the, that's the most important step is to get with them first, right? Well, the most important step is episode one, chapter one, get your art together. Okay. So do you feel like your art is like ripe and ready to go and ready to no, share I, with the I'm world? Just, I, I'm in the process. I just, um, I'm in the process of finishing one uh, song because most of the time I used to take, you know, like YouTube beats, but I'm trying to get away from that, okay. you know, say that for the mixtape stuff, you know, when I want to, you know, bring attention to the, you know what I'm saying? I got in my head how I want to do everything, but yeah. now I'm getting to that point of, okay, getting the material together. Like I just, you know, I just thought of a song idea while y'all was talking mm -hmm. and whatnot, trying to multitask here, you know. Uh, it's just been difficult because I've been trying to get the, you know, money up. And that's why I want to start with the lawyer thing because, mm -hmm. you know, I can write all day. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, if I could, if I could just be a songwriter, I could get the money, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. To, you know, pay the producers and whatnot, but, you know, I know that's a lie. I know I'm saying a lot. That's okay. Here, you know what I'm saying? But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I'm just trying to, you know, sort all this out, man. And so, like I said, that, uh, the first thing is to get the thing together. That once I get it, once I get all the songs together, like, okay, this is what I want to record in these sessions and whatnot. Um, then I go to, I go to the, uh, volunteer for lawyers or whatnot. Okay. Boom. Um, trying to think of anything else after that. I mean, of course, then probably from there, I'll get the other steps. Yeah, that's my only thing. Okay, well, there actually is a second step. So episode two is pre-recording marketing foundations. Mm -hmm. So I would set up an email list, a text club through community.com, make sure your socials are in place. Um, so that's what we're doing. This is a step-by-step -step process. Mm -hmm. And also these podcast episodes are free. So you can go back to episodes one and two and get caught up as we... Uh, we're on three right now as we get through steps four through 12. Okay. Yeah. Bet that up. Awesome. That's exactly what we're doing. We're taking all this disparate information that's out there and putting it in order from recording to release or creation to execution while ensuring you're not missing any revenue streams along the way. Um, any other questions on producers? And again, just quickly to recap, um, I also talked about recording engineers. We talked about any players you might have on your recordings. Uh, we talked about work for hire agreements. We discussed uh, songwriting splits, um, as well as you know mixing engineers, mastering engineers, um, and you know really anyone that that sets foot in the studio. Um, so, any questions on that or in general? Yeah. <laughs> Just popped in my head when you asked, does anyone have any questions? Yeah. Um, uh, do you need to register stems? Oh, good question. Um, to my knowledge, no. Um, but if I would say, like, if you're a dance artist, what kind of music do you make? 
Um, I make R&B, uh, blues, yeah. uh, African-styled uh, blues, R&B. I don't, I don't think you need to. I mean, I think if you were a dance EDM artist and you know a lot of remixes are, are going to happen, like maybe... But I would kind of worry about that problem after it happens. Like if you feel like someone is ripping off your stems, maybe you could go consider it. But it's 75 bucks a pop um, to register your copyright. You know, so that's a, that's a lot of stems. That's a lot of songs. Um, I was really interested in, in what Jessica had to say about um, how you would get more money if you've previously registered with the copyright office. Um, but really, I, you know... That's a hypothetical problem that could be a problem for sure. And especially with AI and like I said, there's a million genres in, in dance music, but I would wait until that's a problem for you and then start spending 75 bucks per spam, okay. per only, stem to go do that. The only reason I'm asking is because I know in a, in, a, in, a, in a prior session, we were talking about uh, putting out teasers. You might put yeah. something out on your on your website sure. or uh, or on Instagram, and it could be yeah. a stem. It could be you just kind of playing something, a work in progress. Um, so you might need to worry about somebody taking that sure. at some point. Um, and it could be, a, as you mentioned, be a problem down the line, but I was just wondering how one ensures oneself. Yeah, great question. I think for teasers, maybe do a little bit more than a stem. Um, so maybe it's a demo, maybe it's just like, um, you know, just a vocal track or something that could be a little less stealable, but I would focus on yourself for now. You know, like when people, when you start having these issues, like that's a great problem to have, you know, like it's a weird thing to say, but that means you're out there, you know, like pe people are paying attention to you. I, I would focus on your own green grass uh, right now. I, I'm more interested in making sure that you have work for hires signed by everyone on your recordings and that you have songwriting splits um, figured out with, with anyone you're collaborating with. Like all the stuff you're asking, like great questions, but I think they're kind of nice to haves. So I would focus on the basics, focus on your music. And then when people start um, ripping off your stems, you can start uh, registering that. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Hi again. Hey. Uh, so I got two questions sure. that have nothing to do with each other, but okay. we can talk through each one. Yeah. Um, and the first one is going on, you mentioned before that uh, the concept of pre-clearing a song before yes. sync, right? Yeah. So let's say me and four other people are involved on the publishing side. Mm -hmm. Is there a way that we could agree to for each of us to have that pre-clearance? Like if, if the third person gets in touch with the sync? Uh, opportunity or I get in touch with the sync opportunity for us each to have an equal pre-clearance. Yes. And I would totally recommend that. And if you guys are all going out hustling for sync separately, lead with that information because it's going to be that much more attractive um, because it's really a, I mean, I know there's like 18 writers on stuff, but it's like, <laughs> it's a turn off to see that because you know, the sync industry is just so go, 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 you know, like, oh my gosh, we need this edit by yesterday, you know, like their budgets are lean too. So um, yes, pre-clear with each other, make sure, you know, grab an agreement from co-signed, like make sure you have that all agreed to, um, and then lead with that information. And because again, that's going to be very attractive. Um, it's called, well, one stop would be like owning both sides, but it's, it's basically the same thing. So it's just like, this is pre-cleared. This is good to go. You don't have to check with anyone else. And and here's a document that shows that. Uh, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. 
And you were talking about remixing earlier mm -hmm. and how a lot of times the remix doesn't really touch the publishing side of things. Correct, yeah. So in hip-hop, when a remix is being made, there's usually new verses introduced. So in those scenarios where there is more songwriting going on yeah. in the remix, is it still going on that, like, oh, it's still a remix, so it's not touching publishing? Or does do the rules change there? Really good question. Um, that's definitely songwriting. If there's a new verse being introduced, yeah, absolutely. Like, hey, you're going to get, you know, whatever percentage on the publishing side that you agree to. Um, you want to make sure, though, like, it's that version of the song, you know? So you might want to keep an eye on, or you might want to consider retitling that work. So let's, I don't know why this word is popping in my head. Let's say the song is called Amazing or something, right? So you have like Amazing, but then you do this remix and it's like Amazing, you know, blah, blah, blah version or something. Just something so it's, it's different because um, the writers on the first version should get, you know, their full share of publishing. Um, but yeah, if someone's writing new words, yeah, that's definitely songwriting for sure. Would you say the scenario is the same on like a Martin Garrix remix of a popular song, for example, that being its own work, having new songwriting elements introduced and that same advice of retitling the work? Is or there, is it different because it's pure sonically like remixing? Is there new words on that? Not new words, but let's say it's an entirely different uh, melody and they just grabbed like the hook off of the song, for example. I would still say that's arranging or remixing. Mm. Um, so that would generally be a flat fee. Um, or if, again, if there's truly no cash, you could offer them a percentage. Um, but then, like I said, if it's some huge artist coming in to arrange a remix, and especially if they're cool with their name being openly attached to it, like go as high as 50%, you know, on the recording side for all I care. But I, I would argue that does not touch the publishing side, the scenario that you just described. Got you. Appreciate it. Yeah. But again, like if it's a huge artist, they might command more publishing, like all this stuff is negotiable, not to be like self-righteous. I'm speaking from like a very like pure place, um, you know, with this stuff. Um, so yeah, so we also, like I said, we talked about songwriting splits, remixing, arranging, how to release a cover song. Um, and group band agreements. Anything else? Uh, yeah, get up there. Tashi, I'm a music addict. Um, yeah, I was just thinking, like, you know, I mean, it's part of just part of the music business, but at the same time, you know, I'm just, you know, going over things in my head, and, um, you know, um, would it be wise to, you know, it's not that much bread to spend money on an ad um, to kind of like, you know, start like kind of bringing, trying to bring in your fan base to mm -hmm. try to, you know, like, because uh, like, like me personally, I'm in like the Japanese culture and all that. Yeah. And so, you know, they have the, um, they have the mark over there in Brooklyn. And, you know, it's like, it's nothing for me to put an ad in, but would, would I be wasting my time, you know, doing that? Or would that be a... Um, advantageous thing to do um is your art together are you ready well, i'm saying once it's together and everything okay. of course i mean yeah. you know i'm just like i said i'm just tr trying to make sure that my plan is not you know because sometimes i you know come up with some cocky many plans and when it goes eh, you know it's like man why not work out you know so sure. i'm trying to just you know 
get this thing together, you know? Yeah, I think that sounds cool. Um, episode seven is how to market with or without a budget. Mm-hmm. And I think you can take in all that information and decide, okay, if I have a limited budget, I can go for that ad, or maybe I could do some radio promo, um, and then you can decide where to spend it. So I, I think you need to take in all the information. I, I think that's a good idea, but I think you want to look at everything that's available and decide what's right for you and yeah, your yeah, career. I'm going to check, check out that podcast. Then, you, know <laughs> you keep saying, go back to the podcast. Like I just learned about this. So, yeah. You know, so. Well, that episode hasn't happened yet. I mean, there's there's ones from previous season on, seasons on that topic, but that'll be episode seven um, this month here. Okay. Yeah. All right. Bet. Awesome. All right. Anything else? We're business. Yeah, Mark. Oh, now I'm nervous from Professor Tavern. Hey, how are you? I'm great. Um, I'm Mark Tavern, uh, former uh, record label employee, former manager, current music business yeah. professor. Um, and uh, my question is, What's your advice on samples? Oh, yeah. I'm so glad you asked that because someone you mentioned, um, you know, getting beats from YouTube. Um, I really like beat stars. Um, I, I know you hear from students. I've heard from students that are like renting beats from YouTube. And I'm like, what does that even mean? Um, so that's something I asked Carl folks last season um, at beat stars. Um, it seems it is a reputable platform where it's clear like, yes, you own these beats or you can license these beats instead of, in my opinion, and I'm sure yours too, random things you get off the internet. Um, Like I said, it was actually like I managed an Olympic swimmer um, named Jay Litherland and he has a rap group with his triplet brothers called Trips. And I, it was either them or one of my students at NYU that was like, yeah, I'm renting beats off YouTube. I'm like, what does that mean? You know? So Beat Stars is your friend because, as you know, you want to make sure you own these rights. So when you do land a sync placement, you're rep and warranting that you actually have the rights for it to get placed. Otherwise, um, you know, you're just wasting everyone's time. Yep. Thanks. Perfect. Great. Important question. Thank you. All right. We're business affairs experts. Good. Okay. So just a couple announcements. Um, that I wanted to share at the beginning, but wanted to be mindful of Jessica's time. So we wouldn't be here without the support of the New York City Mayor's Office of Media and Entertainment. This live podcast taping is a part of New York Music Month, the official celebration of New York City's vibrant and dynamic music ecosystem, which I'm so proud to be a part of. We'll be covering, as I mentioned, the entire modern music industry in full through this series all month while ensuring you're not missing a single revenue stream along the way. I've also really loved getting to know our live audience attendees thus far and even hired one to help. (laughs) She asked if I needed help. She was hired by the next day. Um, You all work so hard and, and really inspire me. And of course, we are recording this in June, which means it's Pride Month. I want to deeply thank our partners at the Ally Coalition for supporting us and the crucial work that they are doing. Founded in 2013 by Jack and Rachel Antonoff, the Ally Coalition provides critical support for organizations dedicated to bettering the lives of LGBTQ youth and raises awareness about the systematic inequalities facing the the LGBTQ population. The, uh, The Ally Coalition is committed to bettering the lives of LGBTQ youth through tours, social media campaigns, and collaborative partnerships. To learn more and how you can get involved, visit theallycoalition.org. 
All right. So that's a wrap for this episode. Join us tomorrow at 4 p.m. Eastern in real life here at Tower Records Tower Labs in Brooklyn or via live stream on our YouTube as we discuss how to record with or without a budget. We'll be talking to Ryan Burvick, who's the founder at who's a founder at Audio Pictures and program director at the Free Studio slash Beats Rhymes and Justice. I know Ryan has done a lot of work on Rikers Island and with incarcerated youth, getting recording programs going. So I'm really excited to talk to him and and learn more about the work that he's doing. Huge thanks to podcast manager Mike Zimmerlich, engineer Nathan Kane. Uh, upcoming episode five guest Matthew Wong for composing the show's music. Danny, David, and Jake at Tower Records Tower Labs. Today's guest Jessica from Cosigned. Downtown, the Ally Coalition, Liquid Death, Hal Leonard, and of course, the Mayor's Office of Media and Entertainment's New York Music Month for making this all happen. Thanks so much for tuning in, and we'll see you tomorrow.